Self-Deception by Jacob Helvenstein. The following questions from the pen of Dr. Ashbel Green are so much in point here that we shall take the liberty of presenting them to the reader with the earnest request that he would consider them as addressed to himself. Have you seen yourself to be by nature and by practice a lost and helpless sinner? Have you not only seen the sinfulness of particular acts of transgression, but also that your heart is a seat and fountain of sin, that in you naturally there is no good thing? Has a view of this led you to despair of help from yourself, to see that you must be altogether indebted to Christ for salvation, and to the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit for strength and ability rightly to perform any duty? On what has your hope of acceptance with God been founded? On your reformation? On your sorrow for sins? On your prayers? On your tears? On your good works and religious observances? Or has it been on Christ alone, as you're all in all? Has Christ ever appeared very precious to you? Do you mourn that He does not appear more so? Have you sometimes felt great freedom to commit your soul to Him? In doing this, if you have done it, has it been not only to be delivered from the punishment due to your sins, but also from the power, pollution, dominion, and existence of sin in your soul? As far as you know yourselves, do you hate and desire to be delivered from all sin without exception of a favorite lust? Do you pray much to be delivered from sin? Do you watch against it and against temptation to it? Do you strive against it and in some degree get the victory over it? Have you so repented of it as to have your soul really set against it? Have you counted the cost of following Christ or of being truly religious, that it will cut you off from your vain amusement? from the indulgence of your lusts, and from a sinful conformity to the world, that it may expose you to ridicule and contempt, possibly to more serious persecution. In the view of all these things, are you willing to take up the cross and to follow Christ whithersoever he shall lead you? Is it your solemn purpose in reliance on his grace and aid to cleave to him and to his cause and people to the end of life? Do you love holiness? Do you earnestly desire to be more and more conformed to God and to His holy law, to bear more and more the likeness of your Redeemer? Do you seek and sometimes find communion with your God and Savior? Are you resolved in God's strength to endeavor conscientiously to perform your whole duty to God, to your neighbor, and to yourself? Do you make conscience a secret prayer daily? Do you not sometimes feel a backwardness to this duty? Do you at other times feel a great delight in it? Have you a set time and place and order of exercises for performing this duty? Do you daily read a portion of the Holy Scriptures in a devout manner? Do you love to read the Bible? Do you ever perceive a sweetness in the truths of Holy Scripture? Do you find them adapted to your necessities and see at times a wonderful beauty, excellence, and glory in God's Word? Do you make it the man of your counsel and endeavor to have both your heart and life conform to its doctrines and requisitions? Have you ever attempted to covenant with God? 
to give yourself away to him solemnly and irrevocably, hoping for acceptance through Christ alone, and taking God in Christ is a covenant God and satisfying portion of your soul. Does the glory of God ever appear to you as a first, greatest, and best of all objects? Do you feel a love to mankind such as you did not formerly feel? Have you a great desire that the souls of men should be saved by being brought to a genuine faith and trust in the Redeemer? Do you love God's people with a peculiar attachment because they bear their Savior's image and because they love and pursue the objects and delight in the exercises which are most pleasing and delightful to yourself? Do you feel it to be very important to adorn religion by a holy, exemplary, amiable, and blameless walk and conversation? Do you fear to bring a reproach on the cause of Christ? Does this appear to you extremely dreadful? Are you afraid of backsliding and of being left to return to a state of carelessness and indifference to religion? Do you desire and endeavor to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ your Savior more and more? Are you willing to sit at his feet as a little child and to submit your reason and understanding implicitly to his teaching, imploring his Spirit to guide you into all necessary truth, to save you from all fatal errors, to enable you to receive the truth and the love of it, and to transform you more and more into a likeness to himself? Number three, it will tend to assist you in this examination if your minds are directed to those objects which are calculated to elicit feeling. You cannot determine your state simply by looking into your hearts. You must look at truth. Every Christian grace has reference to some Bible truth. And without a distinct apprehension of that truth, we cannot from the nature of the case determine the character of our exercises. Do you wish to ascertain, for example, whether you love God? Then you must contemplate his character. Study that character as revealed in his word, and having formed scriptural views of what God is, next inquire what are the affections with which you regard him. Do you delight in his holiness, approve of his justice? acquiesce in his sovereignty, adore him for his mercy. Do you wish to determine whether you have repented? Then look at sin, its nature, its malignancy, its ill desert. If your heart be right, the object being presented to your mind, there will follow those affections which the character of the object is calculated to produce, self-abhorrence and contrition. Do you wish to determine how you stand affected towards the scheme of redemption? Fix your attention upon that scheme as revealed in the gospel. Reflect on the character of Christ, the design of his mission, the sufferings he endured, and the atonement he made, and with these truths before you, inquire what has been their practical influence. Do you feel the attractions of the cross and the constraining influence of a Savior's love, and abandoning every other ground of dependence, do you trust alone for salvation in him who is wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities? Number four. Do not judge your state so much by your external conduct as by your internal exercises. We would by no means have you overlook the actions of your life. Religion is practical as well as experimental. The character of our conduct, however, is to be determined by the state of our hearts. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
our judgment of others must be formed by their actions. The motives which prompted those actions we have no power to discern. But in passing sentence upon ourselves, the case is materially different. If we cannot search the hearts of our fellow men, we may search our own. And nothing but the consciousness that we are under the influence of right affections can afford any proof of the existence of piety. The form of our actions may be right, while the principle from which they flow may be wrong. True religion consists in a new heart and a right spirit. Number 5. Do not determine your state merely by the circumstances of your supposed conversion, but by the fruit of that conversion. I am far from intimating that you may not be assisted in the judgment you form of your case by reverting to your first exercises. It should be a serious inquiry what views you then entertained of yourself, of your depravity, guilt, and condemnation. Carefully, too, should you determine by what means your mind became relieved, whether your hope was a result of cordial submission to Christ or whether it originated from some other cause. Beware, however, that you do not place an undue dependence upon what might be regarded as an extraordinary experience while you overlook the influence which that experience has exerted upon your subsequent practice. The only evidence which some appear to furnish of their conversion is that they were once the subjects of deep conviction, which was eventually succeeded by hope and joy. But all this may be felt while the heart is unchanged." Thousands, perhaps, have gone through this process whose whole deportment evinces that they are yet under the dominion of sin. Mistaken souls that dream of heaven and make their empty boast of inward joys and sins forgiven while they are slaves to lust. After all, the surest test of a genuine experience is holy living. We must bring forth fruits meet for repentance. Herein says the Savior, Is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit? So shall ye be my disciples. Number 6. Judge your state more by your habitual than by your occasional exercises. Under certain circumstances, an unrenewed man may be deeply excited on religious subjects, while the general tenor of his conduct may manifestly be against him. Who can forbear feeling under the hand of affliction amid the scenes of a religious revival or under the forcible exhibition of divine truth? The genuineness of this feeling, however, must be tested by its permanency. Piety is not spasmodic or periodical, but uniform and progressive. The path of the justice is a shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. They go from strength to strength, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The affections of the Christian may not indeed be always alike vigorous, while there are times when he may pour out his soul in prayer with unutterable fervor, there may be times when the spirit of prayer may seem to have vanished, and his petitions be to him only like a chattering noise. He may even wonderfully backslide from God and become remiss in duty. Such, however, is not his ordinary state, nor is it a state in which he can remain long. His repentance will be as deep as his fall, and forgetting those things which are behind, he will press forward with renewed vigor to the immortal prize. The late Mrs. S. Huntington is well remarked. Character is not what a person does or is once a year or once in half a dozen years, but what he is and does habitually. 
A very generous man may from mistake or from some other cause do what will appear the excess of littleness. A very meek man may, from the pressure of perplexing circumstances, get so much off his guard as to utter things unadvisedly and improper which he would weep tears of blood to recall. A very humble man may be placed by the imputation of charges which he knows to be false in a situation so irksome as to induce him to defend himself with a tone and manner entirely foreign from the general disposition and habit of his mind. Number 7. In determining the reality of your piety, examine not so much of the strength of your affections as their nature. Many are kept in a state of suspense, not because they believe themselves to be entirely destitute of holiness, but because their religious character is so imperfect. Now, though none ought to be satisfied with present attainments, and though no true Christian can be satisfied with the advance he has already made, still the possession of any degree of holiness is as decided a proof of a state of grace as a possession of the highest degree to which the most eminent saints on earth may have arrived. The difference between a saint and a sinner is not that the one has more holiness than the other, but that the one possesses some holiness and the other none. As the heart of man by nature is destitute of all moral goodness, the exercise of any right affections is evidence of a gracious renewal. While then it is certainly proper that we should examine the degree of our piety, the point now to be determined is its reality. The question is not whether you love God as you ought, but do you love Him at all? Not whether you have that measure of godly sorrow which the malignancy of sin demands, but whether your heart is really contrite and humble. Not whether your faith in Christ is as strong as the scriptures encourage you to exercise, but whether it is indeed the faith which worketh by love. Not whether you pray with as much fervency as your wants call for, and the gracious nature of God permits, but whether you have indeed the spirit of supplication. I am aware that this distinction is liable to abuse, still it is one of vast importance, and the man who, after having, as he supposes, ascertained that he possesses any measure of holiness, can content himself with its bare existence, and aspires not after the perfection of the gospel, that man betrays unquestionable evidence that instead of loving holiness for its own sake, he regards it as merely a means to the accomplishment of some selfish end. Self-Deception Conclusion The writer cannot close this labor of love without an affectionate and earnest admonition to the listener immediately to enter upon a thorough examination of his spiritual state. The subject before you is one of preeminent importance relating not merely to your welfare in time, but to your destiny for eternity. Have you a trial at court involving your property on your reputation? You cannot rest until it be decided. Are you threatened with failure in your worldly business? With what anxiety do you examine your accounts and inquire into the state of your affairs? Are you afflicted with some dangerous disease? How seriously do you mark its symptoms and calculate on its probable result? Why then leave the greatest of all interests at stake? If our solicitude to avoid any impending evil or to secure any anticipated good should be in proportion to their magnitude, then the salvation of the soul demands our first and principal attention. What is the body to the soul? 
What is time to eternity? What is earth to heaven? What are all the evils of the present life to that undying worm, that quenchless fire which must ere long be the portion of the finally impenitent? Nothing is worth a thought beneath, but how I may escape the death that never, never dies. I'll make mine own election sure, and when I fail on earth secure a mansion in the skies. Remember that the points to be settled are no less than these. Am I in a state of nature or in a state of grace? In a state of justification or in a state of condemnation? Am I a child of God or a child of Satan? An object of divine favor or an object of divine wrath? Shall I ascend to heaven or sink to hell? Shall I mingle with the ransomed around the throne? Or shall I be doomed to take up my portion with the lost in outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? The man who can leave questions like these unsettled betrays a degree of moral infatuation and insensibility exceedingly alarming. Dear listener, whatever else you neglect, leave not this momentous interest in suspense. Earth with all its scenes will soon vanish, and in some other portion of Jehovah's dominion you must remain in a state of conscious existence, in happiness or misery forever. Time is your only season of probation. As you now sow, you will hereafter reap. The soul once lost is lost irretrievably. You need not perish. The way of life is clearly marked out. If you are deceived, your deception is voluntary and criminal. If you wish to know your state, you may. Shrink not from impartial self-examination with fervent and persevering prayer for the teachings of the Holy Spirit. It is a business upon which you must enter yourself. The writer cannot do it for you. He may furnish you with the means, but it remains for you to use them. Look to God for light. Plead with him in the language of the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Should you have come to the conclusion that you are yet a stranger to grace, and are ready in the agony of your soul to exclaim, My former hopes are fled. My terror now begins. Let me beseech you, go at once to Christ. If you have never truly given yourself to Him, do it now. If you have never repented, repent now. If God has shown you your danger, He also points you to your refuge. The door of hope is yet open. You may yet be saved. Hasten to the Savior of your soul. He waits to be gracious and has assured you that you shall in no wise be cast out. The End I'd like to finish out this tape from a narration of the works of John Owen, Volume 7, A Treatise of the Dominion of Sin and Grace. The psalmist, treating with God in prayer about sin, acknowledges that there are in all men unsearchable errors of life beyond all human understanding or comprehension, with such daily sins of infirmity as stand in need of continual cleansing and pardon. Psalm 19.12 Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. But yet he supposes that these things are consistent with a state of grace and acceptation with God. He had no thought of any absolute perfection in this life. 
of any such condition should not stand in need of continual cleansing and pardon. Wherefore, there are or may be such sins in believers, yea, many of them which yet under a due application to God for purifying and pardoning grace shall neither deprive us of peace here nor endanger our salvation hereafter. But he speaks immediately of another sort of sins, which partly from their nature, or what they are in themselves, and partly from their operation and power, will certainly prove destructive to the souls of men wherever they are. Verse 13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. This is a hinge whereon the whole cause and state of my soul doth turn. Although I am subject to many sins of various sorts, yet under them all I can and do maintain my integrity, and covenant uprightness and walking with God, and where I fail am kept within the reach of cleansing and pardoning mercy, continually administered to my soul by Jesus Christ. But there is a state of life in this world in which sin has dominion over the soul, acting itself presumptuously, in which integrity and freedom from condemning guilt are inconsistent. This state, therefore, which alone is eternally ruinous to the souls of men, he deprecates with all earnestness, praying to be kept and preserved from it. What he there so earnestly prays for, the Apostle in the words of the text promises unto all believers by virtue of the grace of Christ Jesus administered in the gospel. Both the prayer of the prophet for himself and the promise of the Apostle in the name of God to us do manifest of how great importance this matter is as we shall declare it to be immediately. There are some things supposed or included in these words of the Apostle. These we must first a little inquire into, without which we cannot well understand the truth itself proposed in them as first. It is supposed that sin doth still abide in and dwell with believers, for so is the meaning of the words, that sin which is in you shall not have dominion over you. That is, none of them who are not sensible of it, who grow not to be delivered from it, as the Apostle doth, Romans 7.24. Those who are otherwise minded know neither themselves, nor what sin is, nor wherein the grace of the gospel doth consist. There is a flesh remaining in every one which lusteth against the Spirit, Galatians 5.17, and it adheres to all the faculties of our soul, whence it is called the old man, Romans 6.6. 6 in opposition to the renovation of our minds and all the faculties of them called the new man, Ephesians 4.24, or new creature in us. And there is, according to Romans 8.14, a continual working and provision to fulfill its own lusts, so that it abides in us in the way of a dying, decaying habit, weakened and impaired, but acting itself in inclinations, motions, and desires suitable to its nature. As scripture and experience concur herein, so a supposition of it is the only ground of the whole doctrine of evangelical mortification, that this is a duty, a duty incumbent on believers all the days of their lives, such a duty as without which they never can perform any other in a due manner, will not be denied by any, but either such as are wholly under the power of atheistical blindness, or such as by the fever of spiritual pride have lost the understanding of their own miserable condition, and so lie dreaming about absolute perfection. 
with neither sort are we at present concerned. Now the first proper object of this mortification is the sin that dwells in us. It is the flesh which is to be mortified, the old man which is to be crucified, the lusts of the flesh with all their corrupt inclinations, actings, and motions that are to be destroyed, Colossians 3.5, Romans 6.6, 6, Galatians 5.24. Unless this be well fixed in the mind, we cannot understand the greatness of the grace and privilege here expressed. Number two. It is supposed that this sin, which in the remainders of it, so abides in believers in various degrees, may put forth its power in them to obtain victory and dominion over them. It is first supposed that it has this dominion in some, that it does bear rule over all unbelievers, all that are under the law, and then that it will strive to do the same in them that believe and are under grace. For affirming that it shall not have dominion over us, he grants that it may or does contend for it, only it shall not have success, it shall not prevail. Hence it is said, to fight and war in us, Romans 7.23, and to war against our souls, 1 Peter 2.11. Now it thus fights and wars and contends in us for dominion, for that is the end of all war, whatever fights, it doth it for power and rule. This, therefore, is a general design of sin in all its actings. These actings are various according to the variety of lusts in the minds of men, but its general design in them all is dominion. Where anyone is tempted and seduced of his own lusts, as the Apostle James speaks, be it in a manner never so small or so unusual, the temptation whereunto may never occur again, the design of sin lies not in the particular temptation, but to make it a means to obtain dominion over the soul, and the consideration hereof should keep believers always on their guard against all the motions of sin, though the matter of them seem but small, and the occasions of them such as are not like to return. For the aim and tendency of every one of them is dominion and death, which they will compass if not stopped in their progress, as the apostle there declares, James 1, 14 and 15. Believe not its flatteries. Is it not a little one? This is the first, or shall be the last time. It requires only a little place in the mind and affections. It shall go no further. Give not place to its urgency and solicitations. Admit of none of its excuses or promises. It is power over your souls to the ruin that it aims at in all. Number three, there are two ways in which, in general, sin acts its power and aims at the obtaining this dominion. There are the two only ways in which any may design or attain an unjust dominion. And they are deceit and force both of which I have fully described in another discourse. His discourse on indwelling sin also narrated for the chapel library. With respect whereunto it is promised that the Lord Christ shall deliver the souls of the poor that cry to him from deceit and violence. Psalm 72, 12-14 These are the only two ways of obtaining an unjust dominion, and where they are in conjunction, they must have a mighty prevalency, and such as will render the contest hazardous. There are few believers, but have found it so, at least in their own apprehensions. They have been ready to say at one time or another, We shall one day fall by the hand of this enemy, 
and have been forced to cry out to Jesus Christ for help and succor with no less vehemency than the disciples did at sea when the ship was covered with waves. Lord, save us, we perish! Matthew 8, 24 and 26. And so they would do, did he not come in seasonably to their succor? Hebrews 2, 18. And herein the soul has frequently no less experience of the power of Christ and his grace than the disciples on their outcry had of his sovereign authority when he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This dominion of sin is that which we have here security given us against. Though it will abide in us, though it will contend for rule by deceit and force, yet it shall not prevail, it shall not have the dominion. And this is a case of the highest importance to us. Our souls are and must be under the rule of some principle or law, and from this rule our state is determined and denominated. We are either servants of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness, Romans 6.16. This is the substance of the discourse of the apostle in that whole chapter, namely, that the state of the soul as to life and death eternal follows the conduct and rule that we are under. If sin have the dominion, we are lost for Forever. If it be dethroned, we are safe. It may tempt, seduce, and entice. It may fight, war, perplex, and disquiet. It may surprise into actual sin, yet if it is not the dominion in us, we are in a state of grace and acceptation with God. Of the Dominion of Sin and Grace, Chapter 2 The inquiries for understanding the text proposed... We shall inquire into three things from the words of this text. Number one, what is that dominion of sin which we are freed from and discharged of by grace? Number two, how we may know whether sin has a dominion in us or not. Number three, what is the reason and evidence of the assurance here given us that sin shall not have dominion over us, namely, because we are not under the law but under grace? First, as to the first of these, I shall only recount some such properties of it as will discover its nature in general. The particulars in which it does consist will be considered afterwards. First, the dominion of sin is perverse and evil, and that on both the accounts which render any ruler dominion so to be. For, number one, it is usurped. Sin has no right to rule in the souls of men. Men have no power to give sin a right to rule over them. They may voluntarily enslave themselves to it, but this gives sin no right or title. All men have originally another lord to whom they owe all obedience, nor can anything discharge them from their allegiance thereunto, and this is a law of God. The apostle saith, indeed, that to whom men yield themselves servants to obey, his servants they are to whom they obey, whether of sin to death, or of obedience to righteousness, Romans 6.16. And so it is. Men are thereby the proper servants of sin. They become so by their own voluntary subjection to it. But this gives sin no title against the law of God, whose right alone it is to bear sway in the souls of men. For all that give up themselves to the service of sin do live in actual rebellion against their natural liege lord. Hence a number of things do follow. The great aggravation of the evil of a state of sin. 
Men who live therein do voluntarily wrest themselves what lies in them from under the rule of the law of God and give up themselves to be slaves unto this tyrant. Could it lay any claim to this dominion, had it any title to plead, it were some alleviation of guilt in them that give up themselves to it. But men yield themselves to the slavery of sin, as the apostle speaks. They reject the rule of God's law and choose this foreign yoke, which cannot but be an aggravation of their sin and misery. Yet so it is that the greatest part of men do visibly and openly profess themselves as servants and slaves of sin. They wear its livery and do all its drudgery. Yea, they boast themselves in their bondage and never think themselves so brave and gallant as when by profane swearing, drunkenness, uncleanness, covetousness, and scoffing at religion, they openly avow the Lord whom they serve, the master to whom they do belong. But their damnation slumbereth not, whatever they may dream in the meantime." Number two, hence it follows that ordinarily all men have a right in themselves to cast off the rule of sin and to vindicate themselves into liberty. They may, when they will, plead the right and title of the law of God unto the rule of their souls, to the utter exclusion of all pleas and pretenses of sin for its power. They have right to say to it, Get thee hence. What have I to do any more with idols? All men, I say, have this right in themselves because of the natural allegiance they owe to the law of God, but they have not power of themselves to execute this right and actually to cast off the yoke of sin. But this is a work of grace, since dominion is broken only by grace. But you will say then, to what end serves this right if they have not power in themselves to put it in execution? And how can it be charged as an aggravation of their sins that they do not use a right which they have, seeing they have no power so to do? Will you blame a man that has a right to an estate if he do not recover it when he has no means so to do? I answer briefly three things. First, First, no man living neglects the use of this right to cast off the yoke and dominion of sin because he cannot of himself make use of it, but merely because he will not. He does voluntarily choose to continue under the power of sin and looks on everything as his enemy that would deliver him. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject unto the law of God, neither indeed can be, Romans 8, 7. When the law comes at any time to claim its right and rule over the soul, a man under the power of sin looks on it as his enemy, that comes to disturb his peace and fortifies his mind against it. And when the gospel comes and tenders away and means for the soul's delivery, offering its aid and assistance to that end, this also is looked on as an enemy and is rejected and all its offers to that end. This then is a condition of everyone that abides under the dominion of sin. He chooses so to do. He continues in that state by an act of his own will. He avows an enmity to everything which would give him deliverance, which will be a sore aggravation of his condemnation at the last day. Number two. God may justly require that of any which it is in the power of the grace of the gospel to enable them to perform and comply with, for this is tendered to them in the preaching of it every day.
And although we know not the ways and means of the effectual communication of grace to the souls of men, yet this is certain, that grace is so tendered in the preaching of the gospel, that none go without it, none are destitute of its aids and instances, but those alone who by a free act of their own wills do refuse and reject it. This is that which the whole cause depends on. You will not come to me that you might have life. And this all unbelievers have or may have experience of in themselves. They may know on a due examination of themselves that they do voluntarily refuse the assistance of grace which is offered for their deliverance. Therefore is their destruction of themselves. But thirdly, there is a time when men lose even the right also. He who gave up himself to have his year bored lost all his claim to future liberty. He was not to go out at the year of jubilee. So there is a time when God judicially gives up men to the rule of sin, to abide under it forever, so as that they lose all right to liberty. So he dealt with many of the idolatrous Gentiles of old, Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. And so he continues to deal with the like profligate sinners. So he acts towards the generality of the anti-Christian world, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. And with many despisers of the gospel, Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. When it has come to this, men are cast at law and have lost all right and title to liberty from the dominion of sin. They may repine sometimes that the service of sin or the consequence of it in shame and pain, and the shameful distempers that will pursue many in their uncleanness. Yet God, having given them up judicially to sin, they have not so much as a right to put up one prayer or petition for deliverance, nor will they do so, but are bound in the fetters of cursed presumption or despair. See their work and wages, Romans 2, 5, and 6. This is the most woeful state and condition of sinners in this world, an unavoidable entrance into the chambers of death. You that have lived long under the power of sin, beware lest that come upon you which is spoken of in these scriptures. You have as yet a right to deliverance from that bondage and servitude in which you are, if you put in your claim in the court of heaven. You know not how soon you may be deprived of this also, by God's giving you up judicially to sin and Satan. Then all complaints will be too late, and all springs of endeavors for relief be utterly dried up. All your reserves for a future repentance shall be cut off, and all your cries shall be despised. Proverbs 1, 24-31 Whilst it is yet called today, harden not your hearts, lest God swear in his wrath that you shall never enter into his rest. That you may be warned, take notice that the signs or symptoms of the approach of such a season, of such an irrecoverable condition, are 1. A long continuance in the practice of any known sin. There are bounds to divine patience. The long-suffering of God for a time waits for repentance, 1 Peter 3.20, 2 Peter 3.9. But there is a time when it does only endure vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, Romans 9.22, which is commonly after a long continuance in known sin. Number two, when convictions have been digested and warnings despised. God does not usually deal thus with men until they have rejected the means of their deliverance. There is a generation indeed who from their youth up do live in a contempt of God. Such are those proud sinners whom the psalmist describes, Psalm 10, 2-7, and so on. There are seldom any tokens of the going forth of the decree against this sort of men. 
the appearing evidences of it are their adding drunkenness to thirst, one kind of sin to another, making a visible progress in sinning, adding boasting and a profane contempt of all things sacred to their course in sin. But ordinarily, those that are in danger of this judicial hardness have had warnings and convictions, which made some impression on them, but are now left without any calls and rebukes, or at least any sense of them. Number three. When men contract the guilt of such sins as seem to entrench on the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, such as proud, contemptuous, malicious reproaches of the ways of God, of holiness, of the Spirit of Christ, and His gospel. This sort of persons are frequently marked in the Scripture as those who at least are nigh unto a final and fatal rejection. Number four. A voluntary relinquishment of the means of grace and of conversion to God which men have enjoyed, and this is commonly accompanied with a hatred of the word and those by whom it is dispensed. Such persons God frequently and that visibly gives up in an irrecoverable way to the dominion of sin. He declares that he will have no more to do with them. Number five. The resolved choice of wicked, profane, unclean, scoffing society. It is very rare that any are recovered from that snare. And many other signs there are of the near approach of such a hardening judgment as shall give up men everlastingly to the service of sin. Oh, that poor sinners would awake before it be too late. Number two, this dominion of sin is evil and perverse, not only because it is unjust and usurped, but because it is always used and exercised to ill ends, to the hurt and ruin of them over whom it is. A tyrant, a usurper, may make use of his power and rule for good ends, for the good of them over whom he rules, but all the ends of the dominion of sin are evil to sinners. Sin and its rule will pretend fair, offer a number of advantages and satisfaction to their minds. They shall have wages for their work, pleasure and profit shall come in by it. Yea, on a number of pretenses, it will promise them eternal rest at the close of all, at least that they shall not fail of it by anything they do in its service. And by such means it keeps them in security. But the whole real design of it, that which in all its power it operates towards, is the eternal ruin of their souls. And this sinners will understand when it is too late. Jeremiah 2, 13 and 19 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.